So what we're doing this uh, summer is we're, we are working our way through the gospel of Mark. And Mark is really divided into two parts. Last week, we really caught like the transition moment. Because the first part is all about the question, who is Jesus Christ? And the, the resounding answer over and over again is that Jesus is the Christ. He is God's anointed king. He is the one who has authority over everything. And so th- then we transition to when uh, Jesus' disciples actually have that awareness. They have that understanding of who Jesus is, but they actually misunderstand what that means. And so the second part of Mark is all about the cross because Jesus is a king who came to rescue his people. And, he, and Jesus rescued his people through suffering and dying upon the cross. And so we're, we're in the, the, like the, really the, the second uh, well, not really the, the first scene or the second scene of where we are transitioning to think about the cross and how the, the way of Jesus actually involves suffering. And so today we're looking at the, this passage that's called the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And this is a, a passage that is fairly well known, but it's, it's actually one of the most intimate moments that we see Jesus sharing with his disciples, with his, with like his best friends of Peter, James, and John. And so let's look at this passage. This is a Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through verse 13. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version translation. You can follow along and your worship guides are on the walls uh, be, behind me. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses. And one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written. Of him, this is the word of, of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would be with us now. May your spirit be at work in your heart, in our hearts, that your word would be in our hearts, that we would know you, that we would see who you are, that we would see who we are in light of you, and that we would walk with you in our everyday life. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was at our, our denomination's General Assembly down in Dallas, and one of my friends, David Cassidy, was one of the preachers at the assembly. And during his sermon, one of his sermon, he shared this 
quote. He, this, this, it's an illustration, but it is a quote for us. But he goes on to describe the average Christian in the world in 2019, and this is what he said. The average Christian in the world is not male but female, not white but brown or black, from the developing world, not the first world, and far more Pentecostal than Presbyterian. The average Christian in the world today is a 22-year-old brown female. She has not been to a passion conference. She has not read C.S. Lewis or Christianity Today. She has not read your blog, nor does she go to a coffee shop to read her Bible, nor care one bit about alternative endings to the Game of Thrones, and I added, or spoilers to Stranger Things. She is likely the vessel God will use to prophesy to the next generation, and she and her people are probably fashioning the church and will re-evangelize the northern west. He goes on to say this, that she is not afraid of suffering either. Over 215 million Christians are persecuted with intimidation, prison, and even death for their faith in Jesus Christ across the world. One ministry, Open Doors USA, lists the top 10 persecutors of Christians. Some of those are Islamic extremists, but also Hindu nationalists, the North Koreans, the Chinese government, and even South American drug cartels that send murderers to kill evangelists because they know that converts will give up their drugs and stop being criminals. And so this 22-year-old is not afraid of suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. She understands that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are going to suffer. And as we move into the second act of Mark's gospel, the theme that we must come face to face with is that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are going to suffer. Because the way of Jesus includes suffering. And just that idea that the way of Jesus includes suffering, that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you're going to suffer. Just that idea unsettles us. It bothers us. And and that's because we don't like suffering. We like comfort. We like luxury. Just and here's just an example of how this is the the, the truth. This is just a picture of of Christianity in our, in our culture right now. Uh, about seven years ago, not seven years ago, sorry, two years ago, a Christian organization, one that is known for their doctrinal teaching, decided to have a conference on suffering and the persecution of the church. Their venue, their choice of location, was a Caribbean cruise liner. That's a picture of our, of Christianity in our in our world right now. Well, it's not in our world, but in our culture, in, in America right now. And so the, the, the entire idea that I'm pointing out is that the idea of suffering for Jesus is challenging for us. And so how do we see this in this text? How, where, where is this coming from in this text where that describes Jesus' Jesus's revelation of being fully God? So how, how do we see this? So how, how I want to look at this today is first the call of suffering and the and enduring suffering. The call of suffering and enduring suffering. And so first I want to look at really the second part of, the, of this text. Looking at Mark 9 verses 9 through 13. That, that, well, let's look at these verses as we get into the, the call of suffering. Because there's something going on here with Peter. 
Peter actually has two substantial misunderstandings about Jesus in this text. The first misunderstanding that we're going to be looking at is in verse 9. 9 and following. So, like, Peter, James, and John, they have just witnessed this very personal, this very intimate moment where they see that Jesus is, is unique. And it scares them. It terrifies them. And so they're walking down the mountain. They're still processing it. And Peter asks a, a question. He asks this question. And this is actually pretty normal for Peter. Peter is dense. This is why I relate to Peter because I'm a dense person. I, I'm slow to get things. And so here, Peter, again, we just see how dense he is. Even after he, is, he, he was really confronted and rebuked by Jesus last week, but so he comes to Jesus and he says, why do the scribes, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Well, this is actually like he, Peter last week, he, he had this wonderful moment when he says that, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But then he goes on to tell Jesus that, Jesus, no, you're not going to go to Jerusalem and suffer. You're not going to die upon the cross. Like, so he basically told Jesus, you're not going to suffer, and Jesus rebuked him. That was last week. And so now he's actually asking that same question, just using the biblical story and getting into some of the, uh, some of the Old Testament. And so what's he getting at here? Well, in the book of Malachi, so in the very last book of the Old Testament, we are told that Elijah will return before the day of the Lord. That's what we're told. And so he's asking, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And so what he's getting at is that he's like, hey, Elijah's coming, and then the day of the Lord is going to come. And so it like... Peter has a certain understanding of who Elijah is and his significance and what that means for the Christ. What that means for God's anointed king who's going to make all things right. And so Peter is thinking that, well, now, we now since I just saw Elijah, now, Jesus, it's time to do your thing and bring about the day of the Lord. It's time for you to make all things right. That's what Peter's getting at. And so, but what we see in Jesus' response, that Jesus is actually re reminding Peter that he is going to suffer. That if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, then you're going to, to suffer. And so, in other words, what, in, coming back to Peter, Peter's saying, hey, I just saw Elijah. It's time for you to do your thing, Jesus. You are the Christ. It's time for you to take over. It's time for you to do your thing. And so Peter just wants to get to, like, the final act of what Jesus is meant to do, what Jesus has promised to do, where Jesus has promised to make all things new, where there's no more tears, where there's no more suffering. Jesus, Paul just, not Paul, Peter just wants Jesus to go to, to, to the restoration of all things. But if we look at what, what Jesus says here, because Jesus goes on and says to them in verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they have done to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And so what Jesus goes on to say is like, you're right, Elijah has come, but it's not the Elijah that you just saw on the mountain. Elijah, in Jesus' ministry, was John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and he was uh, really the herald of the king. He would go around, and and we see John the Baptist right away in Mark 1. And And John the Baptist is saying, prepare the way of the Lord for Jesus is coming, for, for Christ is coming. So he's really the herald, the one who's going out and saying, hey, the king is coming, let's get, get your life in order and confess your sins. And that's what John the Baptist was doing. But, the, but John the Baptist was hated. He was treated with contempt. He was despised. In fact, And like Herod, who was the, the, the ruler in Judea at the time, arrested him. And later on, beheaded him as well. And so Jesus is pointing out that, yes, Elijah has come. Yes, John the Baptist came. But when John the Baptist came, he was not glorified. He, he, he actually suffered. He was treated with contempt. He was despised. And he was beheaded. And so what Jesus is saying is that the, that the way of Jesus, the, if we're going to follow Jesus Christ, then we're going to suffer because Christ suffers as well. And so th- that if we know the biblical story well, that in, as we look in the Old Testament, yes, we see Elijah. Yes, we will see Moses. And like both of these two characters, like Elijah is the representation in, the, in this text of all the prophets. Moses is a representation of 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 the Torah, of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Like he, so, in other words, both of these individuals on this mountain are the representation of the entirety of the Old Testament. And so if, when we know the biblical story, we know that Moses is the one who physically led Israel. If he, Moses physically led God's people out of their physical slavery, out of their chains, and in, into the, the, the promised land. But so what Jesus is saying here is in this text, he's like, yes, Elijah has come. The new Elijah was John the Baptist. And, and he's also intimating that he is the new Moses. So when Moses led Israel out of their physical slavery, here's Jesus who has come to bring us out of our spiritual slavery. And the way that Jesus is going to do that, how Jesus is going to rescue us, from being enslaved to our, sin, to our sin is by actually suffering and dying on the cross and rising again. So here we see just one misunderstanding that Peter had about Jesus. And, and it has to do with suffering. Because Peter, again, is n- not understanding that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you're going to suffer. And like I said earlier, this is something that we are very uncomfortable with. This is something that unsettles us. Because here's Peter. Here are the disciples. And when we understand all the messianic expectations that people had about Jesus, that they want Jesus to fight their culture war for them. They, They want Jesus to overthrow Rome so that they would be in power. They want Jesus to do things that Jesus did not actually come to do. And so this is actually why Jesus says to them in this passage, don't tell anyone that what you saw, what you witnessed, until I rise again from the dead. That's why Jesus tells people over and over and over again to be silent about such things, to keep things to themselves, because 
Jesus knows that, that people are going to conclude other things about who Jesus is instead of taking him at his word. And so, in other, so what's, what I'm saying here is that as Jesus comes, Jesus, as Jesus suffers for us, he also is telling us that if we're going to follow him, we're going to suffer as well. And let me just be honest, I, this scares me. Some of you know that I've had two really painful injuries. Uh, with my one time was a broken wrist due to a bike accident and another with uh, herniated discs in my back. And you've been around, if you've been around over the past year, you've known my back. You've seen me when my back flares up. And that, and so I have a degree of anxiety about my pain returning when I re-injure my back. And that the truth is, no one likes pain and suffering. And the truth is, suffering takes many forms in our lives. Some of the suffering may include a wrist or a back injury, but and the suffering that, like that, when you're suffering from physical illness or an injury, or that's not uniquely or distinctly Christian. Everyone suffers that way. And we suffer that way because our world is broken. Our world is fallen. Our world is full of sin. And in fact, like, sin is miserable. And so that's why we suffer. And so suffering comes in all different shapes and sizes. And to the one suffering, no matter what it specifically is, it is intolerable because it is suffering. Yet, and Scripture does not discriminate. It's because whatever you are suffering, whatever you're going through as you endure the miseries of sin, you are suffering. That is what we are told. And so as that's just a fact of life, this side of, of eternity... The way of Jesus is also the way of the cross. If you're going to be a follower, then you're, if, you're going, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to be a Christian, you're actually embracing a call, an identity as a sufferer as well. You're going to be suffering. And there's no way of getting around it. And as we follow the way of Jesus, that means we need to learn what it means for us to suffer well. Let me give you an example of, of my friend Evie. Um, my fr and Evie, um, she... Her husband is a pastor friend of mine. And Evie, she suffers from a chronic disease called interstitial cystius that impacts her, her bladder. It's a chronic disease of the bladder. She's had it for 19 years. There's many days, there are many days where she does not even want to get out, get out, get out of bed. And her husband, Jeff, Evie's husband, Jeff, said this to me once, that, that in the terms of American Christianity... Whenever we see suffering like what Evie is going through, whenever we see suffering, our automatic and default response is to try to fix everything. I know that in my church community, people mean well and they want what is best for my wife, but that always manifests itself in praying for healing. And that's good, that's appreciated, and I love it. But there is little focus on lamenting the pain that she's going through. There's little focus on learning to suffer well by holding on to hope because as a people, we are far more focused on fixing the problem than bearing witness to Christ's love through coming alongside, being together, and enjoying one another's company even as we are suffering. And so for Evie, what is it that helps her suffer well? What is it that gives her hope? What is it that helps her endure and persevere in her suffering? 
Well, it's Jesus. Let's, and this is going back to the first part of the passage. Chapter 9, verses 2 through, through 8. Because we, we learn who, who Jesus is in this passage. We learn who Jesus is because there, this is a beautiful revelation of who Jesus is. That is what I'm, as, I, as I've been using the word personal and intimate, we see Jesus revealing himself to his closest friends and to his inner, inner circle. And so what is going on here, this is the transfiguration of Jesus. Now that word, transfiguration, is not a word that we use in our language. In fact, like, as I, the only time that I have ever seen this word used within the English language, it is referring to this passage. The transfiguration literally is a transformation. It comes from the Greek word metamorphosis. And in this passage, in this moment, we see Peter, James, and John getting a preview. They're getting a sneak preview, a peek, a picture of who Jesus really is. Because they see Jesus transformed. They see Jesus changed. It is, in fact, a foretaste of the coming world to come. It is a foretaste of the resurrection, a glimpse of who Jesus is and as he is fully glorified, as he is revealed to us. And so we see this in a few instances in, in our text. Um, in verse 3, we see Jesus uh, being, uh, his face is white, his clothes are white, and as no one on earth could bleach them. And, and again, if you know the biblical story, back in the Old Testament, Moses had a, this encounter with God. And, and Moses comes down the mountain, and his face shone so brilliantly, he had to cover his face with a veil. And so Moses had access and this intimacy with God in, in that moment. But here, Jesus has an even greater intimacy with God. That we see here. His face is white. His clothes are white. And they're radiating and showing off his, his glory. And so here we see a picture of, of Jesus' access to, to the Father here in this passage. And so, and so Peter, James, and John, they have this front row seat of seeing Jesus in this moment in his glory. That's what we see in verse 3. But then we go on to see verse 4. And this is something I mentioned just a few moments ago. We see both Moses and Elijah both there. And so as they are there representing the, the entirety of the Old Testament, reflect, reflecting God's story, is that they're saying that, like going to Luke 24, 27, Jesus begins with all the writings and the prophets and points to how the writings and the prophets spoke about him. That's, what, that's in Luke 24, and that's the same the thing that's going on here because Elijah spoke about Jesus. All the prophets spoke about Jesus, and Moses spoke about Jesus as well. And so in this moment, we see this amazing picture of who Jesus is. We see, we see him exalted. We see him honored by God. We see who he truly is. And in a few weeks, we're going to look at Jesus' death on the cross. And this passage actually foreshadows his death very explicitly and implicitly. So, and here's a quote from a, a commentator. This is a quote from Tom Wright, and also known by N.T. Wright, if you know that name. 
And so he writes that here on the mountain, this is, he does this compare and contrast moment. Well, if this mountain here in the transfiguration and the, and the mountain, the hill that Jesus will die upon, here on the mountain, the transfiguration, Jesus is revealed in, in glory. There on a hill outside Jerusalem is Jesus revealed in shame. Here, his clothes are shining bright. There they have been stripped off and soldiers gamble for them. Here he is surrounded by Elijah and Moses. There he is flanked by two criminals. Here a bright cloud overshadows the scene, and there darkness comes upon the land. Here Peter blurts out how wonderful this is, and there, there a soldier. Oh, actually, no. Here Peter blurts out how wonderful this is, and, and there Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. And here's a voice saying that this is my son. Listen to him. And there a pagan soldier declares in surprise that this really was God's son. So there is a contrast going on here. That as we look at this passage, when we know where Jesus is going, we should see where Jesus is going here as well. And this is pretty significant. And there's a few other dynamics that underlay, that, that show just how significant this is as well. For example, um, this is actually getting at the other misunderstanding that Peter has in this moment. Peter sees Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and he says, hey, this is a good thing that we're here. And so let me build you three tents, one for you and Moses and one for Elijah. But then we're, we're told from Mark, he didn't know what to say, but he still said something. It's like, come on. That, that kind of explains a lot of moments in my life. But, but, there, but then we're also told why, because he's terrified. Now, just to, I, this is actually, just to go back to something I shared like 10 weeks ago now when we first started the, looking at the Gospel of Mark. Mark is actually Peter's personal assistant. He's the scribe. So what we hear, read in this passage is actually Peter's reflection on this moment. Peter, this is as if Peter is actually telling you himself, like, yeah, I was there, I saw this, and I spoke because I was scared. And so, but Peter says this. And, but at, and so this reveals something as well. This, and I want to look at really what is terrifying Peter at this moment. And, and like, as we read this in, the, in the, the English translation, it really makes no sense. You want to build tents? Who wants to live in like a Coleman tent? Like tents are uncomfortable. But the word that Peter is using here is actually the same word in the Old Testament that's used for the tabernacle. What Peter is getting at is like this is an incredible moment. I want to build you really a shrine, a temple, a place to live in and dwell because this is a significant moment. And that, that's getting at something. Because then he comes to, as he's reflecting on this years later, he says, I, I'm, that I'm really terrified. That, that the, what's going on there is that he's actually encountering the holiness of God. He's seeing Jesus in all his glory and divinity, and he is terrified of it. And that's getting at, at something. Because whenever we are in the presence of God, when we don't know Jesus, we are, we are going to be terrified. That is consistent all throughout Scripture. 
God reveals himself to Isaiah in, in Isaiah 6. And Isaiah just falls down and says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And so here is Peter having that same type of confession out of his, and he's saying that, like, I need to be protected at this moment. I need the tabernacle here in this moment. So here in Peter's mind, he's, he's stuck in, really, the old way of doing things in, in, the old, in the Old Testament. That if you were coming before God, if you wanted to come into his presence and have access to him, then you're, you need to have the tabernacle. You need to have the temple. You need that type of protection. That's at least what Peter is thinking. And so to, to really kind of like make the, the, the moment in, even more intense for, for Peter, a cloud comes down upon him. And this just re- reiterates everything that I'm saying because in the Old Testament, God w- was present with his people and that was symbolized through the tabernacle and what hovered over the tabernacle the entire time. It was a cloud. And so is, what's going on in here is Peter is, is thinking a certain way. It's like, I recognize I'm actually in the presence of God right now. Peter's understanding that Jesus is God. And so he says, I need the tabernacle. I need something to protect me. And so then the cloud comes down, and that just like solidifies everything that he's thinking. But then the next thing we know, boom, everything's gone. The cloud's gone. Moses is gone. Elijah's gone. And so they walk down. The, the mountainside. So that at this point, we're asking, the, we need to ask the question, what protects us? The, the, what protects us is Jesus who went on the, to the cross. That the, what protects us is that Jesus lived and suffered and died and defeated death so that we can have life with God. In fact, friends, that we are here today, and we demonstrated this earlier with our words of assurance, that we are here today, we are able to meet with God because Jesus has lived and died for us. Because Jesus has lived so that we would have life with God, and Jesus died so that we would never spiritually die, but in fact always have life with him. That's what Jesus is demonstrating here. And so going back to my friend Evie, what enables us to endure suffering well is Jesus. What enables us to to have hope is the fact that Jesus defeated death in his resurrection. What enables us to have hope is that Jesus is coming one day, and when he comes, there will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. And that is when Jesus comes again. And that is, that is our hope, that Jesus is not only our, the one who's going to restore all things. Jesus is going to restore all things because he has suffered for us. And as we are going to follow him, yes, we're going to endure suffering. But as we endure suffering, we're going to find that it's going to be in those moments that we can actually thrive because we know God. We can actually endure suffering. Instead of turning to despair, we can actually turn to hope because we know God. We know Jesus. Because we have seen a picture in his word. We have seen a picture in, that, that's given to us by his spirit that all things are going to be na- made new. And that is what's going on in this passage. And it's actually pretty significant that, that as Peter, James, and John come down off this mountain, immediately they're faced by the crowd. Like, this is just jumping ahead to verse 14. They're coming down the mountain, and a great crowd around them. 
and they saw the scribes arguing with them. And so, like, as soon as they come off this mountaintop experience, they are confronted with all the confusion and the brokenness and the sin of the world. And what is meant to sustain us in such a world is Jesus himself. And friends, that is what's going on here. That is actually what Jesus is first and foremost extending to you here. If you're going to follow Jesus, yes, you're going to be embracing a call of suffering. But you're going to be also, first and foremost, receiving the one who has endured the cross so that you would have life. He has endured suffering. Not so that you would escape suffering in this life. Not so that you would never suffer in this life. No, he, he endured the cross so that you would have life with him. That you would experience the hope that is yours because he has defeated sin, he has defeated the power of sin, he has defeated the presence of sin, and one day we'll fully realize that when he comes again. That is what he is offering you, and he is offering you this through himself. So my plea with you today is to take and receive him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word now, and we 